Our second panel takes up three different issues that uh, came before the court last term, property rights, money, and international human rights. So let me touch um, on those subjects in that order very briefly. Um, Ilya Soman will discuss the three property rights decisions. You are doing three of them, aren't you? Uh, only a little on the third one. Only a little on the third one, okay. Um, the three property rights decisions the court handed down uh, this last term. It's been a good couple of years uh, on that front uh, since Justice, Chief Justice Rehnquist spoke of property rights as being like poor relations in the Bill of Rights back in 1994. For the founders, uh, of course, the rights of property owners were fundamental. In his famous essay in the National Gazette in 1792, entitled, aptly, Property, uh, James Madison wrote that, and I quote, as a man is said to have a right to his property, he may be equally said to have a property in his rights. Echoing John Locke's idea that all rights can be reduced to property, broadly understood as lives, liberties, and estates such that right violations at the heart of the matter are takings of things that belong free and clear to another. The, um, after a long dry spell over the 20th century due to the uh, machinations of progressivism, uh, they're making something of a comeback and Ilya will discuss that as it played out in the court's last term. We'll then turn to a question about money, which is really a question about zoning and cell towers, which is really a question in turn about judicial deference in the arcane world of administrative law and about a battle between Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Scalia over the role of the courts in administrative law, which I won't even begin to describe here, but Andrew Grossman has assured us that he will explain it all in a way that will not make your eyes glaze over <laughs> as he talks about Chevron deference, Skidmore deference, our deference, and other forms of deference that the court has invented. Finally, um, speaking of arcane areas of the law, Ken Anderson will discuss the 1789 Alien Tort Statute which lay essentially dormant for a couple of centuries until the Second Circuit breathed life back into it in 1980. And it's been a source of mischief ever since. As Professor Anderson writes in his splendid essay on Kiobel, the Royal Dutch Petroleum, does an obscure 1789 statute really bestow the gift of an unlimited credit card, as it were, on contemporary and global human rights claims? Well, let's turn to our speakers. I'm going to introduce each speaker uh, just before he speaks, and I'll start with Ilya Soman. He is professor of law at the George Mason University School of Law. His research focuses on constitutional law, property law, and the study of popular political participation and its implications for constitutional democracy. He currently serves as co-editor of the Supreme Court Economic it's outdated Bio. I don't serve there anymore. Oh, you don't serve that anymore? Well, you should. Um, I resign. <laughs> uh, in any event, uh, he is a summa cum laude graduate of Amherst College. Uh, he earned his MA in political science from Harvard and a JD from the Yale Law School before clerking for Judge Jerry Smith of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. His writers, writings have appeared in some of the nation's top law reviews, as well as leading newspapers, and he too is a regular contributor to the Volokh conspiracy. So, would you please welcome Ilya Soman. Mm. Sorry. 
stuff here, if you would. You, oh, you want me to stand up here? Okay, no problem. And if you want to lower it, you can do it right there. Excellent. Everything's up to date at the Cato Institute. Wonders of modern technology. Uh, so, like Pope Benedict XVI, I resigned from an important position of spiritual leadership earlier this year. In my case, therefore, I'm no longer editor of the Supreme Court Economic Review, but that gives me more time to do more interesting things, such as follow the Supreme Court's property rights decisions. Uh, and as Roger mentioned, it is sadly the case that property rights are still the poor relations of constitutional law in the sense that in many different contexts, they are routinely given much lower protection than most other constitutional rights, particularly other rights uh, that are specifically enumerated in the Constitution. However, as we will see in this term, progress continues to be made on this front. So while they are still poor relations, uh, they're closer to being allowed to move into the House than uh, to move back into the House than uh, they were earlier. Uh, and specifically, I'll talk about uh, two major decisions. Arkansas Game and Fish Commission versus the United States and Kuntz versus St. John's River Water Management District. I'll also talk briefly about the Horn case, uh, which is actually covered in Josh Hawley's essay in the Cato Supreme Court Review volume. Sadly, he couldn't be here today, so I will uh, very briefly cover for him, and we can talk about Horn in more detail in the questions if people are interested. So I'll start first with Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, uh, which deals with a situation where between 1993 and 2000, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers repeatedly flooded a large body of land belonging to the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, inflicting enormous damage. Uh, this was primarily conservation-oriented land, and so a lot of timber was destroyed, wildlife was harmed, uh, and so forth. And the Game and Fish Commission filed a lawsuit essentially claiming that this violates the takings clause because it is actually a taking of their property, and the federal government didn't pay any compensation for what they did. Uh, uh, the federal government, for their part, argued, however, that temporary flooding as opposed to permanent flooding can never be a taking under any circumstances whatsoever. That was their argument. Uh, and this, to put it mildly, did not meet with the approval of the court. Uh, the federal government lost this decision unanimously in an opinion written by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, where she concluded, I think, pretty obviously correctly that at least in some instances, temporary flooding can be a taking. Uh, she didn't precisely specify exactly when, but she did say it's not categorically exempt from uh, takings clause scrutiny, and I think this is a pretty uh, clearly correct decision. Uh, after all, lots of other temporary invasions of property rights can still be considered takings. In a famous 1946 case, the Supreme Court ruled that temporary overflights by aircraft can in some instances be takings if they disturb the property owner's use the land sufficiently. If a plane flying over your land can be a taking, surely massive flooding over a period of years can be a taking as well. The massive flooding surely does much more damage and disrupts your ownership and control of the property to a much greater extent. So I think in and of itself, this decision is correct. And uh, you know the, the fact that it was 9 nothing reflects, I think, how clearly correct it is. However, uh, a great many things were left by the court for later determination. Uh, 
and in particular, uh, the court was extremely vague about the question of exactly which kinds of temporary flooding actually will be considered takings and which ones will not be. It even uh, did not resolve the issue of whether this particular one qualifies as a taking despite its fairly large scale over a period of several years. Uh, the court did list several criteria that should be taken into account by lower courts in trying to determine whether temporary flooding is a taking. One of them is duration, how long did the flooding last? Another is the character of the government action. A third is whether there are investment-backed expectations of the owner that were undermined. And finally, the degree of foreseeability of the damage that was done and of the flooding uh, and so forth. Uh, however, uh, each of these criteria is at least somewhat vague. Moreover, the court didn't uh, give us an answer to the question of, well, what happens if two of these cut in favor of the government and two cut in favor of the property owner? So there's a lot here left to be determined in future cases, but the issue that the court did address, I think they got correct. Uh, and I think this is just a case where the federal government took a pretty extreme position uh, and got themselves slapped down uh, as a result. There is one other interesting anomaly uh, involving this case, and that is that uh, the case actually involves government-owned property. It's, uh, the property is owned by an agency of the state of Arkansas. If you look at the text of the Fifth Amendment, uh, it's actually quite clear. It says private property cannot be taken without just compensation, but it says nothing about government property. Uh, however, in cases going back to the 19th century, the Supreme Court has said that uh, state government-owned property cannot be taken by the federal government without just compensation, so it has applied the takings clause to that as well. Frankly, I think this is dubious under the text of the Constitution and probably under the original meaning. However, it is long-established precedent, and nobody challenged it in this case. Uh, and obviously, given that it wasn't challenged, the result in Arkansas Game and Fish Commission is going to apply to protect private property as well as state-owned property, and probably actually more of these kinds of cases are going to involve private property uh, than state property. So I do note that anomaly, uh, although actually neither side in this case tried to contest or tried to get the long-standing precedent overturned. More controversial, I think, than Arkansas Game and Fish Commission is the Kuntz case, which split the justices on along a 5-4 divide as to the ultimate result, though there was one important issue that they all agreed on. Uh, and Kuntz, I think, was very divisive, in part because it is actually the most important property rights victory at the Supreme Court, probably in some time, in my view, in at least 10 or 15 years, but you could argue even for longer than that. Uh, Kuntz dealt with a situation where Mr. Coy Kuntz and his son, who inherited his property and also his claim in this case, uh, they owned some property in Florida, and they wanted to get permission to develop it from the area's river management district. But the district said they could only get a permit to do the development if they, among other things, were willing to pay for off-site mitigation, that is for repairs at another site owned by uh, various government agencies. Uh, so unless they paid this money, they would not be able to develop most of the property that they owned that they wanted to do because they would not be able to get the permit that they needed. Uh, now, in two cases decided in the 1980s and 1990s, the Nolan and Dolan decisions, the Supreme Court said that the uh, takings clause imposes two constraints on 
on conditions attached to permits for land use. Uh, one is that there must be a, quote, rough proportionality between the government interest behind the condition and the imposition that the condition imposes itself. Uh, secondly, there must be a, quote, essential nexus between the condition uh, and uh, the interest that the condition protects. So it must be uh, connected in some way. There has to be an essential nexus to the government interest that's being served. And in addition, the extent of the imposition, there has to be some kind of rough proportionality. If either or both of these criteria are violated, then we have a taking and compensation would be required. Now, if you think about these requirements of Nolan and Dolan, although they're couched in very sort of legalistic language, they make good common sense because without them, the government could essentially completely circumvent the takings clause by essentially saying you can't do anything with your land or, uh, at all, perhaps, unless you allow us to invade it or unless you uh, accept various other extremely onerous criteria and they wouldn't have to pay compensation for doing this. So if you want to constrain this anyway, there have to be some significant limits to the kind of conditions that can be imposed on these sorts of permit schemes. Uh, in the Kuhn's case, the court addressed two issues related to the Nolan and Dolan standards that was not a, were not addressed in those two cases themselves. The first is whether Nolan and Dolan apply not just to cases where a request for a permit is accepted, uh, but rather where permits are actually denied. In the Kuhn's case, uh, the permit application was denied because Kuhn's was not willing to accept the conditions. The second question is whether Nolan and Dolan apply to situations where the imposition uh, that is imposed by the permit scheme is not some kind of physical invasion of the property as it was in Nolan and Dolan, where they were actually being forced to allow other people to physically use their land, but rather a situation as here where there is just a monetary exaction. That is, you have to pay money in order to be allowed to develop your land as opposed to make some other sort of concession. Uh, so on the first question of whether Nolan and Dolan apply to permit denials, the Supreme Court was actually unanimous. Everybody agreed that they apply to permit denials as well as to accepted permits. Uh, and I think this is just good common sense. As Justice Alito explained in a majority opinion, and in this part it was actually joined by the four dissenters, uh, he said that if you try to distinguish between denials and acceptances, uh, then Nolan and Dolan could easily be circumvented by government agencies. All they would have to do to circumvent it is just simply write a letter or uh, make a statement which says that uh, your permit will be denied unless you agree to conditions X, Y, and Z. And whatever those conditions are, uh, they could be used to circumvent Nolan and Dolan uh, because the uh, government uh, because the government would then not have to pay compensation so long as they couched it as a denial of a permit as opposed to uh, as an acceptance. Uh, and obviously, as the court also explains, uh, this sim same principle applies to permit denials in other areas of constitutional law. We don't distinguish between the two when it comes to permission to speak or permission to avoid some kind of government search under the Fourth Amendment uh, and so forth. 
The monetary exactions issue, by contrast, deeply divided the court along ideological lines with the five conservatives uh, joining Alito's opinion for the court saying that uh, monetary exactions are covered by Nolan and Dolan and the four liberals uh, supporting Justice Kagan's opinion dissenting from that. Uh, I think, however, there is a strong case for this part of the court's ruling as well. Uh, and I would start with the notion that in every other area of constitutional law, we don't distinguish between infringements on a right that are uh, penalized by monetary exactions versus other kinds of penalties. So for instance, if you had to pay money in order to get a permit uh, or in order to exercise your right to criticize the government, everybody would agree that violates the free speech clause. If you had to pay a fine, if you refused to allow the government to do a search that violates the Fourth Amendment, that would be a violation of the Fourth Amendment. And I think the same thing uh, should be true here. Uh, if you have to pay a fine in order to uh, avoid having your takings clause rights violated, uh, then that also violates the takings clause. Uh, and so this is actually an example of the double standard that uh, some people or many jurists have against property rights that they want to subject them to constraints that are not imposed on almost any other kind of rights uh, of any type. Uh, now, in addition to doctrinal criticisms of the majority, both the dissenters and also academic critics and commentators have raised other kinds of arguments against the Kuhn's decision. Uh, some have said that there would be a flood of litigation. All sorts of permit schemes are going to be challenged uh, uh, as a result of this ruling. Uh, I think this claim is overblown because several state Supreme Courts have adopted a very similar rule under their state constitutions, including major states like California and Illinois, uh, and in those states, no massive flood has happened. Uh, however, I think it is the case that some additional litigation will result from this case because the decision is not completely clear. Uh, it doesn't ex explain in any detail exactly which monetary exactions would be takings under the Nolan and Dolan test. Uh, it's not as clear on that as it could be. And in addition, it's not clear on what is the remedy if a monetary exaction of this kind is found to be a violation of the takings clause. So that would have to be litigated in the lower courts. However, some degree uh, of additional litigation, I think, is inevitable and actually desirable whenever the Supreme Court uh, strengthens the protection of any constitutional right. Think of all of the additional litigation that flowed from Brown versus Board of Education, for example, though I don't predict there would be anything like the same amount here. Uh, the court also claims, or not the court, but rather the critics, a decision that this might deter the government from engaging in beneficial regulation. Uh, once again, uh, that claim could be made against virtually any enforcement of any constitutional right. There might be some beneficial regulations that might be prevented. Uh, but here, actually, the claim is particularly weak because even in cases where the takings clause is violated, the government still, in fact, can continue with its permit scheme if it wants to. It just has to compensate the owners uh, for their violation of their property rights. So if the regulation really is worth it from a societal point of view, the government still has an incentive to adopt it. They just have to pay money. Indeed, they have more of an incentive to ensure that their regulations are efficient and uh, actually provide net societal benefits if they have to pay the money. Of course, you might say, well, maybe uh, they don't need to uh, worry about this because you know, they don't care about wasting the money. It's just taxpayer money, not theirs. So maybe it won't make them more efficient. But if you want to argue that, then you can't can't 
claim that having to pay money will deter them from engaging in beneficial regulation. Finally, just a very brief word on the Horn case. Uh, the Horn case, which as I said is uh, more uh, in more detail covered by Josh Hawley's essay, was a situation where the Horns, who are raisin farmers in California, were challenging as a taking a provision of the Agricultural Marketing Agreement Act of 1937, which required them to turn over a large part of their raisin crop to the government without compensation so as to help create an artificial scarcity of raisins that would increase raisin prices and benefit uh, farmers. Uh, and the uh, lower courts concluded uh, that uh, this claim couldn't even be raised yet because first the Horns would have to uh, pay a $483,000 fine to the government and then pursue a variety of administrative remedies. In a unanimous decision, the Supreme Court rejected this position uh, and concluded that, in fact, they could go ahead with their claim because uh, it simply would have been futile to pursue these administrative remedies that probably uh, would not have worked anyway. Uh, so this is a purely procedural decision. It does not go to the substance of the takings issue. Uh, however, uh, as we can discuss in more detail in the questions, uh, it does potentially uh, portend a situation where it's somewhat easier to raise takings claims in federal court. It's worth noting that the Horn case uh, was the third in a sequence of unanimous defeats for the federal government in property rights cases in the Supreme Court over the previous 15 months, including the Game and Fish case I discussed earlier, and also last year's Sackett case. Uh, I'd like to say that these cases mean the Supreme Court is protecting property rights more aggressively, but they happened at least in part because of the extreme nature of the position that the federal government took in these cases. So the bottom line, I think, is this, that in these cases and also in Sackett last year, there is some clear and important progress for property rights, but there is still a long way to go. And we still see a situation where in the property rights context, a lot of prominent jurists and others, including several members of the Supreme Court, accept arguments that would never be accepted or even taken seriously by most people if applied to other constitutional rights. So it's still the poor relation, but it's a little bit less poor than it used to be. Uh, and hopefully, it will become richer still uh, in the coming years. Thank you. Well, thank you, Elia. We're now going to turn to that abstruse area of the law that I mentioned, uh, administrative law, which uh, Andrew Grossman is going to walk us through. Um, Andrew is one of the up-and-coming stars in Washington's legal firmament. He is a graduate of Dartmouth, uh, did his MA in government at the University of Pennsylvania, and his law degree at uh, George Mason University School of Law. Um, he was a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation uh, for a number of years, senior legal analyst for their Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, where his research focused on law and finance, bankruptcy, national security law, and constitutional separation of powers. In that capacity, uh, he has testified often before House and Senate Judiciary Committees. Um, he is a frequent legal commentator on radio and television, uh, his articles have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, in USA Today, the Washington Post, and elsewhere. 
He clerked uh, on the Fifth Circuit for Chief Judge uh, Edith Jones, and in 2007, the Burton Foundation and the Library of Congress presented uh, him with the Burton Award for Legal Achievement, citing his research on federal evidentiary law and internet communications technologies. Please welcome Andrew Grossman. Hello, happy Constitution Day. I think it would be a fair question to ask um, at the outset of this talk, um, is this really the right day to be discussing uh, a case concerning complex issues of administrative law? Um, I can imagine that a lot of people who carry around uh, these books uh, would probably say no. Um, you know, I've, I've looked through here, and you'll look through here in vain uh, to find a mention of Chevron deference or our deference, or, or really any of the uh, concepts that are part of the legal firmament um, in the area of administrative law. Um, but in this instance, for this case, it probably is the right day. Um, if the city of Arlington turns out to be a landmark case, and it may well be, the reason for it is that it grapples seriously with the role of the courts in administering the administrative state. Now, interestingly, that result is only hinted at in the question that was presented before the court, whether a court should accord Chevron deference to an agency's reasonable determination of its own jurisdiction under statute. The majority opinion by Justice Scalia and the dissent by Chief Justice Roberts operate at two separate levels. One concerns the nuts and bolts of Chevron, and the other, this broader constitutional issue. But since you guys are, I'm sure, uh, all very interested in it, let's start with Chevron. So Chevron, of course, is a 1984 decision that introduced the familiar two-step framework for when a court should defer to an agency's interpretation of a statute that it administers. First, the court asks whether Congress has spoken directly to the question at issue. And second, if the statute is silent or ambiguous on a particular point, the court then asks whether the agency's interpretation is permissible. In this way, statutes that are subject to a, a range of interpretations, it's the agency that gets to determine where within that range the interpretation will lie and not the court. Here, in this case, the Communications Act affords the FCC authority to administer its provisions. One of those provisions broadly preserves local government zoning authority, but an exemption, exception rather, to, the, to that allows wireless operators to go to court when a local government has failed to act on a request to cite a wireless facility, for example, a cell phone tailor, within a, quote, reasonable period of time. So does the FCC have authority to determine how many days is, presumptively, a reasonable period of time, so that wireless operators and local governments have a better idea of their rights and obligations under the statute? According to the petitioner in this case, the city of Arlington, the answer is no, because that portion of the statute is expressly meant to limit FCC's authority um, to regulate state and local governments. The Fifth Circuit, however, applied Chevron deference to uphold the agency's determination that it had authority to interpret and apply that particular provision. And I think right here is where the confusion in this case starts. Is Arlington challenging the FCC's authority to interpret a particular provision of its governing statute? Or is it challenging the agency's authority to determine its own jurisdiction? That would seem to be a broader question. <laughs> to the majority, however, in an opinion by Justice Scalia, it doesn't really matter. Scalia begins with a very distinctive set of first principles. First, statutory ambiguities will, not be will be resolved not by the courts, but by the administering agency. Second, this rule is not a presumption or a fiction about what Congress actually intended but a stable background rule against which Congress can legislate. And third, when does this rule apply? Whenever a court reviews an agency's construction of a statute which it administers. 
What's interesting is that the courts seem to have rejected all three of these things in its 2001 decision in United States v. Meade. That decision denied that all gaps in meeting are for agencies to fill, holding instead that Congress's intentions control in each instance. That prompted a vigorous dissent by, of all the justices, Justice Scalia, who argued that the majority's approach simply misunderstood the division of power between the executive and the judicial branches. Chevron, he said, was a background rule grounded in the separation of powers, not a presumption of congressional intent. Arlington, of course, takes the opposite position. So what happened to Meade? Scalia distinguishes it into oblivion, as only he can. It stands only for the proposition that when an agency has rulemaking authority, Chevron may or may not apply when it, does, when it does not exercise that authority. Of course, if that were the rule the court adopted in Meade, Meade would have come out the other way. Anyway, with these background principles in mind, Scalia makes quick work of the question of deference to an agency's determination of its own jurisdiction. Agency action, he argues, is either lawful or it isn't. This is not like a judicial proceeding, where there's a distinction between the court's jurisdiction to hear a case, whether it has the power to decide at all, versus its correct in, in decision in that case. The distinction between agency jurisdiction and substance is therefore a false one, he argues. Nearly any grant of authority could be phrased in jurisdictional or substantive terms. An agency either has power to do something or else it doesn't. And if it doesn't, the action is ultra vires, plain and simple. His opinion also rejects the narrower argument regarding interpretive, interpretative authority as inconsistent with Chevron's background rule of deference. If an agency has authority to administer a statute, it has authority to administer every single one of its provisions. Courts don't get to trawl through the statute, provision by provision, to determine which ambiguities are for the agency and which are for the court to determine. Dissenting on all of these points is Chief Justice Roberts, joined by Justices Kennedy and Alito. He began strongly, my disagreement with the court is fundamental. Is it ever? The administrative state, he writes, quote, wields vast power and touches almost every aspect of daily life. Indeed, quote, the framers of the Constitution could hardly have envisioned today's vast and varied federal bureaucracy and the authority administrative agencies now hold over our economic, social, and political activities. The citizen confronting thousands of pages of regulations, promulgated by an agency directed by Congress to regulate, say, in the public interest, can perhaps be excused for thinking that it's the agency really, do, that it, that it, that it's the agency really doing the legislating. He concludes, it would be a bit much to describe the, this result as, quote, the very definition of tyranny. But the danger posed by the growing power of the administrative state cannot be dismissed. Wow, this is pretty heady stuff, and it's pretty radical coming from the Chief Justice. Um, is this really finally going to be the decision where he declares Obamacare unconstitutional because the government doesn't have the authority to carry it out? Well, not quite. Um, the way the Chief, Just Chief Justice actually resolves the question presented, this obscure issue concerning uh, agencies' authority to uh, determine uh, ambiguities regarding their jurisdiction, is actually on the narrowest grounds possible, it turns out. A court, he says, should review a statute provision by provision to determine whether Congress intended to delegate interpretive authority over each precise piece to the agency. <laughs> this is very modest. Indeed, it's basically warmed over Meade. And it's difficult to say what the Chief Justice preferred holding, what this rule has to do doctrinally with his complaint about the breadth and reach of the administrative state. In other words, there is some parallel between his opinion here and his opinion in NFIB which memorably criticized the government's view of federal power as, quote, not the country our framers, the framers of our Constitution envisioned, before upholding the statute on other grounds. 
There are also parallels with the Chief Justice's opinions in Wisconsin Right to Life and even in Shelby County this term. In each instance, the Chief has, has espoused broad fundamental first principles of our constitutional order and then attempted to draw a line cabining federal power, but done so on the narrowest grounds possible, giving the government just about everything that it's asking for, but just not quite. If the government would like to go to here, the Chief Justice will go nearly though that far, but no farther. So doctrinally, there's probably not much to be said for the Chief's opinion. It never seriously addresses how this hobbled version of Chevron deference would ever work in practice. Roberts does have a point that it is possible to distinguish between agency jurisdiction and substance. As Michael Grieva memorably put it, jurisdiction concerns a regulatory agency's question, can we screw them? While substance goes to screw them how? <laughs> Roberts tentatively adopts that line, more or less, certainly not in Grieva's precise language. But is that the right line? If Congress authorizes an agency to exercise let's say, jurisdiction over emissions of pollutants that threaten human health and welfare, is it really likely that Congress intended the courts to decide by themselves what is and is not a pollutant without substantially deferring to the agency's views on that question? Even the Chief Justice doesn't seem to accept that this is at all sensible. But the narrower approach that he puts forward is, like Meade, hopelessly vague and an invitation for arbitrary rulings just like that, where judges differ with agencies on matters of policy. And that, of course, has long been Justice Scalia's point. The purpose of Chevron is not to carry out Congress's intentions, but to recognize that the twilight of those intentions, the sort of questions that Congress didn't really decide with any clarity at all, are not a proper, proper subject for judicial determination. Scalia, in fact, shares many of Robert's concerns, but would instead address them at the stage of statutory interpretation, in other words, Chevron's first step, which is something that judges do know how to do. And Scalia draws that line clearly in his Arlington opinion. Everything just about falls into the Chevron bucket. And courts are to direct their attention to finding statutory meaning, not to prescribing it. Courts do not get to wade into what is, at bottom, policymaking. As significant as Justice Scalia's opinion may be, the lineup that supports it may matter as much or more. It's joined by Justices Thomas, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Thomas and Ginsburg have, in the past, expressed misgivings regarding Chevron and both signed on to the majority opinion in Meade. This broad support for Scalia's opinion may signal a coming of age for Chevron. No longer is it merely a weapon in the deregulatory arsenal as it once was. Instead, it should be recognized and can be recognized as stating a neutral principle of law with the equal support of both Reaganites and Obamaites. Yet the court's decision was a letdown for many conservatives and libertarians who saw the case as an opportunity to rein in the administrative state and in particular, most likely, this particular current administration. Let me suggest that this view, which I initially shared, was probably naive. This was never a case about what agencies could do, only who would get to decide. The agencies, when they make their decisions, are at least checked by considerations of political economy. In other words, how much regulation can they get away with before somebody pushes back hard? But the courts are insulated from those things and can order the agencies to do whatever they say the law requires. This isn't a hypothetical concern. It was the Supreme Court, after all, that rejected deference in Massachusetts v. EPA to hold that the Clean Air Act effectively required the, regulation of green, uh, required the regulation of greenhouse gases. And in fact, it was the DC Circuit, I'm sorry, the DC District Court and the DC Circuit that created, out of whole cloth back in the 70s, the same program that's now being used to regulate greenhouse gases. 
The sole statutory basis for that decision was one of the Clean Air Act statutory purpose clauses. In other words, that very same broad language um, that's the subject of so many of these cases. Both of these decisions could have been stopped in their tracks at Chevron step one with the ordinary tools of statutory interpretation. Arguably, they should have been. Watching the Obama administration carry out its regulatory agenda, it's all too tempting to say, defer to these people? Are you crazy? But any attempt to roll back the regulatory state, say, under a future Rand Paul administration, would face the very same challenges in the courts, and probably even greater ones, as special interest groups bring suit to protect their hard-won rents and their favorite public policy programs. If the courts are not going to wipe out the administrative state as antithetical to the Constitution, and they're not, we must resign ourselves to it as a constitutional fact and devote ourselves to finding second best solutions. Arbitrarily swatting at the great bureaucracy won't cut it. Both Scalia and the Chief Justice recognize that it's too late in the day for the courts to seriously rein in the administrative behemoth. Still, the Chief Justice feels the need to make motions in that direction while proposing a rule that could very well lock into place the status quo under some future, more freedom-oriented administration. Scalia's view, by contrast, leaves open at least the possibility of change. That may be the least bad result. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, we're now going to wrap things up for this panel with the 1789 Alien Tort Statute, as I said, which has come back to life in the last couple of decades. We'll be hearing from Professor Kenneth Anderson, uh, who teaches at the American University Washington College of Law. He's a graduate of UCLA and of the Harvard Law School, a visiting fellow uh, at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, a member of the Hoover Task Force on National Security and Law, and a non-resident visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution, as well as a senior fellow at the Rift Valley Institute. This is Washington. It is a town of titles, and he has uh, his fair share of them. Um, he teaches and writes uh, in the areas of business and finance, both domestic and international, law and economics, the public international law, international organizations, human rights, and the laws of war. Uh, together with Duke University's Stephen Schwartz, uh, he is at work uh, on, quote, reforming financial reform for Oxford University Press. He blogs at the Volek Conspiracy and the uh, international uh, supplement, uh, Revisita de Libros. He's written at the Wall Street Journal, the Weekly Standard, New York Times uh, Magazine, Financial Times, and elsewhere. Please uh, welcome Professor Kenneth Anderson. Uh, listening to that biography, I realized that our uh, school's um, public relations people, every time I teach a class to cover for a colleague, they add something new to the bio as an expert. Um, I am certainly not expert in all those areas by any means. Um, now, I am going to be talking about Kiobel, um, the Royal Dutch Petroleum, or Shell, um, and I have the probably rare ability here to um, start by reading you the statute that is at question here in its entirety. <clears throat> so, um, the district courts shall have original jurisdiction of any civil action by an alien for a tort only 
committed in violation of the law of nations or a treaty of the United States. First Judiciary Act of the United States, 1789. The statute lies dormant. Uh, it arises a couple of times very briefly. Um, it's referenced by um, uh, Attorney General Bradford very early on, um, and then essentially lies dormant for a very long period. In the late 1970s and then on into the 80s, the statute suddenly reappears in the hands of human rights lawyers um, seeking ways to try and go after, um, in tort, right, in US courts, uh, defendants who are by and large the former officials of regimes that I think no one would actually have difficulty characterizing as highly abusive in human rights terms. And the most famous of these cases that sort of sets this period, uh, Filartiga v. Peñarala, um, involves a uh, Paraguayan uh, disappearance. The parents of the disappeared Paraguayan um, young man have by now moved to the United States, but so has the police official, former police official from Paraguay, uh, who is alleged to have carried out or have had responsibility for the uh, disappearance and torture and murder of the um, young man. He is not present in the United States at the time the suit is filed, but he had been present in the United States, then proceeded to overstay his visa, and then was deported. Uh, so the reason that he's not actually here is actually on account of the fact of uh, having been removed. Now, this, the court in this case, the Second Circuit, uh, you know, famous decision by uh, Judge Kaufman, uh, winds up holding in sweeping terms that a torturer of this kind is a common enemy of mankind and that these acts cannot be um, countenanced and essentially puts out a sweeping theory of universal jurisdiction that says it doesn't really matter whether the plaintiffs were here in this country, whether the defendant was here. None of those issues matter. All that matters is that there is a, a particular kind of offense which is so heinous that it has to um, be allowed to go forward in this idea of universal jurisdiction. Now, that is not, by and large, um, considered to be a, a wholly radical proposition. It gets pushed back in the form of some later cases, uh, Judge Bork in particular, uh, makes some quite accurate predictions about what the incentives are for this kind of litigation. Um, but one of the reasons that it doesn't really get a lot of pushback is that the folks who are being gone after may not match any kind of traditional jurisdictional categories, right? I mean, territory, person, you know, all these things. But on the other hand, the statute says uh, it's a very peculiar statute. It says that the plaintiff has to be an alien. Right? I mean, not a lot of statutes out there that confer rights upon aliens that are not conferred upon U.S. citizens in terms of who can actually bring a lawsuit. And there is no territorial limitation of any kind. It simply says, in tort only for a violation of the law of nations or a treaty of the United States. Right. 
So the courts did not really push back much on this, and the other reason for this was on account of the fact that the courts um, found themselves in cases that were either uncontested, the defendant didn't show up, so default judgment of some kind, or else the cases were perhaps lightly defended uh, in the sense that they didn't really have a lot of um, pushback. Um, and gradually the human rights bar built up a great deal of expertise and gradually started to accumulate a number of um, precedents at the district court level and then at the um, circuit level in which there wasn't a lot of pushback about what might be a bad idea about this from kind of the interests of the United States, questions about jurisdiction. Um, it was really moralism, and it gave the district courts a lot of opportunity to do so. Uh, it did start to get pushback from many of our friends in the international community, our trading partners and others, who said, you know, there's something very peculiar about this. You guys seem to be under the impression that you're doing international law in the U.S. district courts, but this is not really international law as we know it. I mean, for one thing, the sources that you guys look to as international law here are not what we look to. You guys are all looking to precedents within the district courts. Um, we have, you know, international law has its own structure. It may be vague, unenforceable, many other things. Um, but whatever that is, it's not what the district judges are doing, district court judges are doing. All right, this simmers along for a while. And eventually, for the first time, the Supreme Court steps in in the early 2000s in Alvarez v. McCain with the intent of trying to give some structure to something that appears to be an entirely discretionary process. Court there then says something important. It says, well, the only causes of action that are going to be recognized under this will be those that would have been recognized against actors in violations of the law of nations that would have been recognized in 1789 or roughly the things that would have been recognized in Blackstone's day. Uh, violations against ambassadors, this sort of thing. Now, the, that actually sounds pretty good, but the problem that the court also had was no American is actually going to think that that ought to be enough for a very simple reason, that there would be nothing in there against, for example, slavery. Right? I mean, this is not a violation for Blackstone. Uh, and so it was clear to the court that they're going to have to have some mechanism by which to reach out to at least a handful of offenses, genocide, slavery, crimes against humanity, these kinds of issues that people would say, yeah, these things really do have to be included. And the question is, how do you cabin those things and sort of make sure that the list doesn't become a sort of endless one? Sosa Court winds up saying something remarkably elegant and completely useless. Um, it says, okay, well, they have to be offenses which have the same specificity and universal acceptance of them as being violations um, that these had back in Blackstone's period. And so if they have that level sort of transferred to today, then they're in. Now, as an instruction to the district courts who are already engaged in a fair amount of kind of moralizing around this, um, if you want to cut back an ATS claim, this is just given you plenty of license to do so. If you want to expand an ATS claim, this has given you plenty of license to do so. Okay, so this was not so helpful. At the same time, 
the defendants have now moved into a completely different category. And the defendants have now moved into the category of being corporate defendants who are sometimes being accused of directly engaging in this kind of short list of truly heinous offenses, but most of the time are actually being accused of aiding and abetting some government that's doing so. And this is now producing serious defendants with very serious money at issue, right? I mean, serious, serious money at issue. And those defendants are capable and have every reason in these cases to be pushing back against this. If for no other reason, and, and I wouldn't underestimate the sort of cultural importance of this, if you are the CEO, the general counsel, the senior management of some corporation, and you've just been told in a lawsuit that you guys are aiding and abetting, or perhaps even directly engaging in acts of genocide, crimes against humanity, slavery, forced labor, torture, you look at that and you may not take the advice of your general counsel to sort of settle and go on. You may decide that that actually is just you know, not entirely a business decision. It's a sort of personal decision. Um, this is just not what's happening. But the structure of the Sosa decision left the plaintiffs in the position that they had to plead the most serious crimes in the universe in order to get a claim going, or at least aiding and abetting in the service of that. So this situation gets to the point of building up greater and greater pressure, and it finally comes back to the Supreme Court, but in a different way initially. It comes back to the Supreme Court in the form of saying, by the way, um, the law of nations and treaty law, um, since when can a corporation be considered to be a violator of international law itself as an entity, as an artificial person, International law doesn't provide for that, and it's had ample opportunities in, for example, the negotiations over the International Criminal Court and lots of other places to make corporations directly liable, but it's actually affirmatively declined to do so, I mean, sort of in treaty negotiations and the rest. Furthermore, there is no international civil liability. So we've got a claim then coming up to the circuits, which eventually results in a circuit split in which, in the Keogh Bell case, the Supreme Court agrees to hear the question of whether there can be corporate liability in ATS cases. The argument on the one side being there can't be because they're not objects or subjects of international law who can violate it. Uh, and therefore, there is no international law violation. You have to have somebody who has the legal capacity to violate someone in order to create liability. The argument on the other side is, no, once you've got the acts there, then whoever has actually been the causal actor in the acts is subject to the domestic um, tort regime at that point, and domestic tort has no problems holding corporations liable. So that's the argument. The Supreme Court agrees to hear it. It gets 20 seconds into the argument, and following on a couple of uh, amicus briefs, so Cato should never underestimate the importance of its amicus briefs in court. Um, the question is not about that. The question that's getting fired at both of the uh, uh, counsel, but particularly the plaintiffs, is, hey, the plaintiffs here are all entirely foreign. The defendant is entirely foreign. Uh, all of the acts that we're talking about here took place abroad. Why is this case here? And the very simple answer to that is there's nothing in the surface language of the statute that says anything about it having to have a territorial connection or any other kind of connection. 
Uh, and so let's go forward. Now, the court sets new argument and holds and finally comes down with this decision in the Keobel case where it addresses the jurisdiction and territoriality arguments. And it comes out 9-0, but the four um, justice concurrence um, is really a dissent by any other name. So all the justices agree that this case should wind up getting kicked out, uh, that it doesn't meet the standard, but they've got two very different tests for this. The Chief Justice writing for the uh, majority of five winds up saying, we're looking at this and we are wondering why this is here, and we are going to apply to this something that it appears that we are sort of broadening, the presumption against extraterritoriality. Unless you can show us in the language of the statute or something that will be you know, evidence for us to look at, that Congress intended for the statute to have extraterritorial application, we will not read it in. And that includes this standard, and then the Chief Justice goes on to quote some historical uh, suggestions that actually this, this statute is not as mysterious as it looks. It was intended to give a federal remedy outside of the state courts inside U.S. territory where ambassadors and the such had suffered torts from U.S. citizens, such as getting beat up for their views on the war with France or something. Uh, and that that's what its intent was. And therefore, you shouldn't read it as going beyond that. And kind of, you know, these various um, cases wind up going away. Not necessarily, however, all of them, because what it does is it gets rid of those that have foreign defendants and conduct that takes place in foreign places. And one of the big questions here will be, um, well, wait a second, when we went after the question of could corporations be defendants, we thought we were talking about all corporations, including US corporate defendants and these things. So what happened to that question does not get addressed. The dissent by any other name by Justice Breyer winds up adopting in one sense, a much different approach, but in another sense, they're both talking in the same sandbox. Gone altogether is any notion that the ATS is going to offer universal jurisdiction. Still in there, however, is the idea that if you can construct jurisdiction on the basis of the traditional bases of territoriality and person and subject matter and the rest, then one is actually um, okay. And Justice Breyer is in the position of wanting to save what we could call the real cases, the genuine torturers and the bad guys who somehow have enough of a connection here. They're holding assets here. They are maybe physically present here. Um, something is going to connect them in some territorial sense to the United States. But he wants to cut out what this system of ATS litigation has been gradually morphing into, which is essentially the attempt to extend regulation to the global supply chain of multinational corporations through the US tort system operated through allegations of these ATS claims. And Justice Breyer is quite clear that we're not creating a US 
civil litigation tort system for the world in all of these um, claims of environmental uh, harms, of labor violations, of any of this kind of stuff. Whatever that's going to be, it's going to have to come through some other mechanism. It's not going to come through U.S. court uh, supervision. But he does want to hold out the possibility of these um, other kinds of cases. And in doing so, um, he articulates essentially a sort of holistic test that says you can either go after somebody because the conduct takes place on American soil or relevant conduct, uh, second because it's an American national, um, or third because the acts alleged wind up having some serious and adverse impact, even extraterritorially, against the interests of the United States, including American interests in the value of not providing a safe haven for the common enemies of mankind, that is, the sort of serious tortures. And let me say by way of summing up, that actually doesn't sound all that crazy if we lived in a perfect world. You might actually think, yes, if you could draw all these lines. For that matter, Sosa was actually not so terrible either. The sad fact is we don't live in a perfect world. We live in the world of the American tort system. That was not a joke. Um, <laughs> and in that world, this line will not hold in any kind of way that goes after the person that took the electrodes and then cut off the person's toes and fed them into the meat grinder. It's going to morph back into something that looks like the regulation of ordinary torts in the global supply chain, which is what they're looking to get rid of. Now, these questions of jurisdiction, I'm going to say one, three sentences about this actually has something to do with Constitution Day. The questions that the court is wrestling with here are really cross-cutting questions of jurisdiction, our jurisdiction extended out to various things that take place in the world, and other courts' jurisdictions with regard to our citizens, things that might have impacts on them that actually take place here. And in an increasingly interconnected world, those questions of jurisdiction are going to be increasingly in conflict. From the standpoint of the Constitution, the question really here is how one divides off areas of self-government, because if the interest of a free people is in being able to govern themselves through their constitution, their courts, their rule of law, the question is going to be when does it bump up against some other sovereign people's ability to do the same thing, and where there are inevitably overlaps, which jurisdiction has to confront all the time, then how is one going to navigate those? And I'd suggest in closing that the court has no good principle so far that is going to be able to do that, neither in the Chief Justice's very narrow but too narrow approach, nor in Justice Breyer's kind of the gates are back open again to anything approach. I think the court is going to have to wrestle with this for quite a long time to come. Thank you. Well, thank you, Ken. And let me remind you, if you haven't done so, to pick up a copy of the new Cato Supreme Court Review released just today, and you will find all three of our speakers have essays that discuss the cases they have discussed in much greater detail. All right, now let's open it up to questions. Please wait for the microphone to get to you. Give, uh, tell us your name and any affiliation you may have, and try to limit your question to a brief one, 
And likewise, for the members of the panel, if you could uh, limit your answers to brief answers so that we can get as many questions in as possible. Questions? Yes, this lady right here. Microphone is coming on. Any other questions over here? No? I'm going to send the microphone. Okay. Cool. I'm Rosalind McLennan from Gaithersburg, well, North Potomac, Maryland. Um, Close enough. And I have a uh, eminent domain question. It mainly centers on what started here for me with the Kilo versus New London, Connecticut case. And I guess my question should be addressed to Ilya Soman. Will that we be visiting that a case like that case ever again? Will it ever be taken to the Supreme Court again? And the reason I'm asking is that there's a very dangerous, it was a five to four ruling, and it was a very dangerous clause that um, survived, which was that gave private developers the right to take private property, another person's private property, for economic development. No, good. Justified. Good. So this question actually relates to issues different from the ones that were addressed by the court in this year's property rights cases, but it is something actually I've written about very extensively. Future. I understand. It was left unresolved. It's still out there. But the states have taken over. Yeah. So she lost. Suzette Kilo lost the, the battle, but she won the war. Okay. So I've actually board. written probably about a dozen articles about this, and I'm in the process of writing a book about it. Let me answer very briefly, because if I answer fully, it'll take up the entire rest of the time that we have. The brief answer is there has been a lot of state legislation, but a lot of it probably isn't very effective. If you want to know more, I have a, uh, uh, an article called The Limits of Backlash you can find on my website, which I discuss in more detail. It's in the Minnesota Law Review in 2009. Uh, secondly, there are some unresolved legal issues from Kilo, the principal one being uh, the Kilo decision said you can take property for economic development or almost any other quote-unquote public purpose, but it also said the pretextual takings are banned, uh, takings where the official rationale for the taking is just a pretext for a scheme to benefit a private party. What does it mean for a taking to be pretextual? Well, lower courts have come up with at least five different answers to that question. There is a deep division. Uh, sooner or later, I think the court is going to have to try to resolve that division. Uh, and that's the most likely way for Keogh to come back. When it does so, who knows, there might be even the opportunity to overrule or limit Kilo itself because, among other things, Justice Stevens, the author of the Kilo opinion, has admitted that uh, some of his reasoning was based on a serious misunderstanding of precedent. He actually calls it an embarrassing to admit uh, mistake. He still thinks the decision was right on other grounds, but his statement plus other reasons might eventually lead the court to at least reconsider some parts of Kilo. Much more can be said, but I want to leave more time to address the case that actually happened this year. Madam here, please. Hi, uh, Damien Schiff with Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, two quick questions, one for um, Ilya and one for Andrew. On uh, Kuntz, I'm curious, Ilya, what you think is going to be the, the federal remedy for a, a violation of, of the Kuntz doctrine, whether it means just rescission of the offending condition and then you get the permit without the condition, or whether it means you get money damages instead of the permit without the condition. And yeah, for, for Andrew, I have a question, uh, an abs another abstruse question on an abstruse topic of administrative law. 
can you argue that City of Arlington doesn't address the case where there's a dispute about whether the agency has interpretive authority over the statute in question? So, for example, if EPA offers an interpretation of the Endangered Species Act, which it doesn't administer, will the court still defer to that interpretation? Or is there sort of a, a um, instead of a Chevron step zero, you could say, is there sort of a city of Arlington step zero question that, that you have to answer before you even get to any uh, substantive questions of deference? Do you want to go first or should I? Um, I'll go ahead just because I, the, the, I think the answer is very quick. Um, I don't, I, you're right. I don't think the court did disclaim the idea of a Chevron step zero uh, inquiry as to whether or not an agency uh, actually does, in fact, administer a, a given statute which contains an ambiguity or an alleged ambiguity. Uh, that said, um, you know, the question was treated um, exhaustively in oral arguments. And, and, and I think there was a consensus on the court that, yeah, you do the step zero inquiry, but it takes about three seconds. Um, if, if the agency administers the statute, if there's some indication of that, that's pretty much the end of it. So those challenges are possible. I don't think they're likely to come up very often. Uh, so it's a good question. One of the issues the Supreme Court left unresolved in Kuntz is what happens uh, if you do find uh, that there's a taking one of these types of cases or is a permit denial, uh, what's the remedy? Is it a, a monetary damages as would usually be the case in a uh, just compensation clause takings violation or is it something else? Uh, I think one possibility uh, could be that uh, the remedy would simply be that the government is not allowed to demand this particular concession anymore but the people still wouldn't necessarily get their permits. Some people said, well, that means that the doctrine is meaningless, the uh, property owners wouldn't gain anything. But I don't think it is meaningless because uh, it would at least constrain the range of demands that the government can make in exchange for issuing permits. And it might even diminish the incidence of permit schemes in itself to the extent that some of those schemes are intended to extract these sorts of concessions. Uh, but I also think it's possible that there would be monetary damages as well and some legal scholars such as Richard Epstein of NYU have said that that's consistent with Kuntz and that should be the answer. The Kuntz decision itself actually uh, suggests that monetary damages might potentially be the remedy, at least in some cases. So I think it really could go either way. Uh, and that's something that I think is definitely going to be litigated in the lower courts uh, over the next few years, including probably by your organization. Alexander R. Cohen of the Business Rights Center at the Atlas Society. Question for Ilya. Uh, concerning the Horn case, uh, which I've actually been doing some work with, and I've, in reading it, one thing puzzles me, uh, which you didn't mention, but I hope you can enlighten me about it. And that is that in the opinion, in the opinion of the court, it says that the, what is being challenged as a taking is the monetary imposition uh, that was imposed on the horns for failure to turn over the raisins and not the demand for the raisins themselves. So could you explain why that is and why one would not simply say that taking the raisins is the taking rather than the attempt to take money for failing to turn over the raisins? So in the first instance, uh, the penalty for failing to turn over raisins is that you get this monetary imposition. So I don't think in this case there's going to be a distinction that matters a lot because uh, in almost 
any instance, if the government violates a constitutional right and then says, well, if you don't yield to the violation, there's a monetary fine for paying it. Technically, you might be challenging a monetary fine rather than the initial violation itself. But I think in this case, it's not going to make much difference, especially since uh, what the Supreme Court resolved wasn't even the underlying takings case, but rather whether these people could raise the takings issue at all. This is a follow-up to Andrew. I'm Dave Sintel. Are yourself, sir? I'm Dave Sintel. I have something to do with administrative law occasionally. <laughs> uh, this is a follow-up from uh, Andrew. With respect to the congressional decision to delegate or to trust, entrust a statute to an agency for resolution of ambiguities, I had understood since the early 80s, that that was the justification, or at least the strong justification, a strong justification for the existence of Chevron deference. That is to say, because Congress entrusted this statute to the agency and left the ambiguity in it, Congress must have intended for the agency to resolve it. Does this decision of Scalia's and the majority in the court to forego the examination of whether the agency has been entrusted that statute and rely upon the agency's own construction, does that in any sense delegitimize Chevron deference from the word go? Um, your Honor, um, it, it's with some hesitation that, that I respond uh, to, to your, your question on uh, administrative law. Um, I think the answer, though, is yes. Um, this is something that I think that's been a common thread in uh, Justice Scalia's writing on Chevron. And, and indeed, the court, I think, has had a bit of a, has gone back and forth uh, enough to have a bit of whiplash on, on the question of the, 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 the cause, the why of Chevron. Um, the initial Chevron decision talks about democratic accountability and that kind of thing without really devoting all that much space, I think, about a throwaway sentence um, to the idea that it, it's an actual, actually in some fashion uh, carrying out what Congress specifically intended, who Congress intended would resolve ambiguities. Mead, of course, flipped entirely the other way, um, adopting it as sort of a very weak presumption that has to be backed by some amount of evidence, um, you know, that Congress specifically intended that any particular ambiguity or silence uh, would be within the ambit of an agency's administrative power. Um, Justice Scalia, of course, uh, very vehemently um, objected to that and said, well, what we're really talking about in this instance is the role of the courts. It has nothing to do with what Congress exactly intended. And I think it, you know, it's hard to say whether or not that's going to be the holding or going to be recognized as the holding of City of Arlington, but that's the view that the City of Arlington adopts. It says absolutely nothing about some type of fictional view or, or some type of presumption as to what Congress actually thought would happen. Um, it treats Chevron, I think, somewhat more as a tool of um, judicial restraint. Um, that's the way Scalia's viewed it. Um, it remains to be seen whether or not the uh, other justices who joined with him in that decision um, actually think that's what the decision means. And is there a question for Ken Anderson? If not, I'm going to ask okay. you a question, and no, that no. is the, the most general of all possible questions, uh, and that's as between uh, textualism and originalism on this uh, alien tort statute. Uh, originally, of course, it had a much narrower focus uh, and designed to protect um, ambassadors and their families and so forth. Um, has there been any effort to, uh, to go beyond textualist reading of it 
uh, and to return to more of an originalist, going at the real function of it as it was originally understood? Um, answer is yes, and part of this is because, um, I mean, the textualism arose in part because the text is so convenient if you want to do certain kinds of things. Um, but the second was there's no legislative history, there was no obvious, and there was no use of the statute that developed it in any kind of way. And so it was regarded as mysterious and obscure and kind of a blank slate. Um, there has been historical work that has been done. Curtis Bradley, for example, down at Duke has um, done some of this, and other people have as well. And what they've pointed out then is precisely this, that it, it isn't as mysterious as it looks. If you think about it as being confined to the territorial United States and worried about ambassadors and their families and folks like that uh, getting you know, roughed up by somebody who's mad and they try to sue and the state court has no sympathy for them, then it's designed to provide a federal remedy to something that looks like a pretty obvious common sense thing. So in that sense, I think that the, um, that the historical work which is being done here has informed everybody in this. And I think the thing that disappears first is any view that this is intended to be a universal jurisdiction sort of thing, even if there's a desire to sort of save a sliver of it on Justice Breyer's part. I think that it is actually this historical um, discussion which has caused everybody to sort of return back to a very traditional notion of jurisdiction, expansionary or contractionary, uh, either way.